If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John 21. We'll shortly be reading verses 15 through 19 of John 21. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you're more than welcome to borrow one of those black ESV Bibles in the seat front uh, before you. And if you do, you can find John 21 on page 907 of those black ESV Bibles. It seems like it was quite a long time ago that we read of Peter's denial of Jesus, that just as Jesus foretold, Peter the brave would crumble in a time when he needed to be strong, and he would deny Jesus three times before that rooster crowed. It was an important moment, and it was precisely what we might expect from somebody who is a leading man in Scripture's plot. Scripture unlike any other book of the ancient Near East, any other book that has heroes in it, treats those heroes with a blunt simplicity. People don't get off. Their faults are highlighted and even magnified at times. David, Moses, Peter, Paul, anyone who might think that these were perfect men, righteous in all things, only have to read of them in Scripture to know that that is not the case. Peter, no doubt, who would be a great leader in the church, not only the church in Jerusalem, but the church throughout the whole world, who would be a pillar of that church, would stand in this most important of times and deny the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. How is somebody supposed to come back from that? That public kind of failure, that, that very important kind of failure where you are to confess the Lord before all things, before all men. Do not fear man. You know, Peter fails at that, not once, not twice, but three times. Not only how are you to come back from that and stand before the Lord whom you've denied, but how are you then to be a leader of the faith amongst men and women who know your failure? How are you to lead them? when this is one of the most prominent things that people will know about you? This isn't just a good question for Peter, but for all of us. For our lives are filled with sin, and all of our sin is no less a denial of Christ than was Peter's. For we say that he is Lord, and yet we do the things that he says we are not to do. We say that he is Lord, and we don't do the things that he tells us to do. We say that we love him. And yet, we find ourselves doing the very things that he despises. How do we come back from that? In the passage before us here in John 21, we see this reestablishment of Peter. We catch a glimpse of how Jesus desires Peter to love him after this failure. It is no less a picture, not only for prospective elders, but for all of us. How can we love Jesus after we sin? Let us read John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know 
everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of our God. How are we to love Jesus? How are we to honor Jesus? How are we to glorify Jesus after we sin? How is Peter to do this? First, we love Jesus by loving Jesus' sheep. Let's talk for a moment about Jesus' sheep. Our love for Jesus must be displayed in a love for his people. Jesus begins this post-dinner conversation with what seems to be a fairly innocuous question. Do you love me? Peter answers, as one might expect, he should. Yes, Lord, I love you, which is not only true, but he even references the fact that Jesus knows this. Jesus, you know this is true. There's a good question to ask about what Jesus means by these. Do you love me more than these? That question can be taken in any of a number of different ways. Do you love me more than the fishing gear? Do you love me more than the things of the world, in, in a way of saying? Do you, do you love me more than the, the rest of the apostles love me? Or is your love greater than theirs for me? Or he might even be asking, do you love the apostles that are around? Do you love the brotherhood that you have here more than you love me? I think it's helpful that it's not very exact. It's kind of vague, and that tends to be helpful for us because we can then fill in. Are you more tempted to love the things of the world? Are you more tempted to love the people around you, your family, your friends? Jesus says, you are to love me more than them. There isn't a direct causation here in the words of Jesus. It's not like he says, if you love me, then you will feed my sheep. But I think that that is strongly implied. Peter, do you love me? He says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. These are the things you will do, Peter, if you love me. His loyalty and his fidelity to Jesus cannot be shown as it has been in the past. Jesus will be ascending to the Father. This is a word that is incredibly important for Peter because Peter was prone, as much as any of the apostles were, to great signs and show of love for Jesus, particularly in a direct way. Peter was the first to speak up when others would cower. Peter is the first to confess when others are afraid to say what they feel because he loves Jesus. Peter is the first to launch himself out of a boat, whether to get into shore or to walk on water to see Jesus. Peter was the one who reached out with a sword and cut off the ear of the servant because he loved Jesus and he wanted people to know that he loved Jesus. He was willing to speak out and to tell Jesus that he was wrong. Peter says, I will die for you before I will let you die. All of these were very public demonstrations of a love for Jesus and that love was something of a direct line, but Jesus will not be around anymore. How is Peter to show his love for Jesus as he ascends to the Father? He will do it by loving and taking care of and feeding and tending his people. Our love for Jesus cannot just be demonstrated in these great visible things that we do specifically for Jesus. You talk to people who want to seem like they're especially holy, and they talk about all these ways that they love Jesus directly. I, I pray to him, 
I stand and I praise him in my car. I praise him in the pews. I, I praise him everywhere. I sing praises to him. I pray to him. I have great personal devotion to him. All those things are needed, but all those things are not enough. You must love God's people. Evangelical Christians are, are really prone to talking about the fact that you've been called into a, a personal relationship with God through Christ. Friends, that's not true. You're not called into a personal relationship with him. You're called into a public relationship with him. Yes, it is personal. You are to know him, but you don't know him privately. You know him publicly. You know him and you love him through how you love your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know him and you love him about how you take care of one another. You don't just love him in confession. You love him in communion with others. Shared fellowship between believers, taking care of one another, not just having the elders do it or not just having apostles do it, but honestly living in fellowship with one another is how we demonstrate our love for Jesus. This ought to be plain and clear enough to us. This is the way that things work in life. If you were to tell me that you loved me, and say, I... I love you and I want to watch out for your well-being. And, and I'm devoted to you. I'll make a covenant with you and I will help you and I will, I will guard your reputation. I will hold you accountable. You can hold me accountable. I want to, to be a, a help to you and an aid to you and I want to love you as Christ has called me to. I say, that's great. If after two years you don't know the name of my wife or you show an ignorance of her or disrespect toward her, you don't love me. You might love the thought of who I am, but you don't love me. I, I wouldn't feel as though anyone who hates my wife or ignores her loves me. After all, we are one flesh. We've been called bonded together. We have made that commitment to ourselves, but that, that has social ramifications. How you treat my wife is how you treat me. Therefore, if we are to love Christ... And this mystery is great and profound. We also have to love his bride. You have to take care of it. These grand demonstrations of a personal praising and, and prayerfulness before Jesus is great. But you have to love the sheep that belong to Jesus. And they are indeed his sheep. They're not the pastors. They're not the elders. They're not the apostles. Now, I think that we can make too much out of language sometimes. I don't have a huge problem with pastors saying the sheep of my church, my sheep, right? I, that's, that language doesn't bother me that much. So long as that pastor understands and so long as that elder understands that those people truly belong to Jesus and not to them. If, if what they mean by that is simply the sheep that Jesus has given me to watch over, then I'm okay with it. But ultimately and in the end, Every pastor and every leader in the church has to know that these are not sheep that belong to them. They are sheep that belong to Jesus. Why do people own sheep? People own sheep not for, their, not for the shepherd's good, not for the good of the people who watch over them. They own sheep for their own good. They own sheep for their own wool, to love and care for them. That's why they own sheep. You are possessed by Jesus Christ for his glory not for mine, not for any elder. They belong to Jesus.
Paul warns us about this, about elders and leaders who will mistreat their sheep many times. One of those times is in 2 Timothy. At the end of chapter 2 and going into the third chapter of 2 Timothy, the chapter division is unhelpful here. Paul says this, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. These apparent servants of the Lord, Paul warns early, early in his ministry, late in his ministry, throughout his ministry, and throughout the age of the church. He says these apparent servants of the Lord will use the sheep for their own purposes, for their own glory. They are flippant with the souls and lives of the sheep so that they might profit off of them. And now realize that in order for them to pull that off, they had to do all of that fraud in person. There wasn't huge Christian communities out there. There were packets of Christians. These people had to show up in front of Christians, live with them, lie to their faces, and cover up all of the evil intent that they had. Their appearance of godliness had to be formed from the moment they woke up until the moment they put a mask on and were able to get behind a cloth or behind a room to unveil who they really were. How easy is it now? They don't need to lie to people's faces. They just need to lie to computer screens. They can hide behind their carefully prepared and manicured visages on on YouTube and on any podcast that they might have so that you only get to see the side of them they want you to see. I'm telling you, I and the other pastors in this church can protect you only so much. We can protect what is spoken here in this pulpit. We can protect the kind of books that we read collectively. We can protect you by the kind of songs that we sing and the things that we put out there. But we have no ability to protect you from the people you follow on the internet and the people you follow on YouTube and the the people that you listen to on podcasts. We can't protect you from those people. You've got to be careful. For many of these men are nothing but wolves. And they seek your harm so that they might profit off of it. All they want are your likes, your approvals, and your, retreat, your, your retweets so that they might be seen to be great. They want to profit off of you. And the more popular they are, the more careful you have to be. And I'm not saying that there aren't popular people out there who are excellent and good and godly that you should follow. I follow a lot of popular people. But you must be careful. Anyone, anyone on this earth who cannot be held accountable for the harm that they do to you should be held very loosely. Any of the pastors of this church 
who do harm to you can be held accountable. A man doing a podcast from his church's basement in St. Louis will never be held accountable to you for the damage that he has done to your soul on this earth. Make no doubt before Jesus Christ he will, but not on this earth. Friends, be careful. Peter learned this lesson well. These are Christ's sheep, and Peter is to love Christ through his shepherding of those sheep. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Isn't that beautiful? Peter, the apostle of the apostles, the head apostle, the pillar of the church, writes to other elders, not looking down on them as an apostle to elders, but eye to eye with them as an elder to an elder, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those you are in charge of, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Friends, you ought to expect no less out of your leaders than what Peter is called to do here, not only in the book of John, but what he understands himself to be called to in his own book. Love the sheep and love Christ. Tend the sheep and love Christ. Second, we love Jesus by experiencing Jesus' mercy. Let's talk for a couple of moments about Jesus' mercy here in this passage. Jesus here, I think to no one's great surprise, is reestablishing Peter as an apostle and as a leader in the church. As we read through this portion of scripture, it should have been obvious to us, and John has included at least one clue that has sort of sparked our memory, as it were, that this is perhaps going to be the case. Several chapters ago and many, many weeks ago, I told you to keep in mind this idea that Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire. That word charcoal seems pretty regular for us, but it has no occasion really to occur in Scripture. It occurs only twice. It occurs in chapter 18, where Peter warms himself by it in order to deny his Lord, and it occurs here in chapter 21 as the fire over which Jesus is uh, cooking fish and bread. And so even as we hear that, we are prepared to think that this is sort of the antithesis of Peter's denial. We are led even more helpfully by the fact that Jesus has Peter confess his love for him three times. If Jesus is going to reestablish Peter, he must do so publicly. Privately is not going to work. I have no doubt Peter and Jesus have already had private conversations. Nevertheless, to be an apostle over other apostles, to be an apostle over the church of God, Peter is going to need more than just Jesus' private affirmation. He is going to need his public affirmation. And there are two ways to do this very, very poorly. Jesus can blow him up. He can humiliate him. And he can run him down. Petey, you've done a bad thing. What in the world makes you think that I would ever put you back up as a leader of my church? After what you did, the other ten didn't do this. The other ten didn't deny me. You denied me. 
Maybe you can grovel a little bit. Maybe you can show me how much you want it. Maybe you can plead to be reinstated, and maybe I'll consider it then. It's very rare that people do this, but I have seen people do this to others. When they have been sinned against, they want their pound of flesh. They want groveling. They want not just repentance and a clear sign of of anguish and sorrow, but they want it grandly and extravagantly. Jesus could have done that. He could have blown him up that way, and he could also blow it off. He could have said, listen, Peter, honestly, guys, guys, it's nothing. A momentary lapse, some weakness. Maybe he had some bad fish earlier that day, and he just couldn't stomach all of it. There's a lot of action going on. He just cut off a dude's ear. Let's, let's cut him some slack. Give him a bit of a break. It really isn't a big deal. And sometimes when we do things like that, it actually isn't a big deal. There's a misunderstanding and people forget to do something or just common sort of natural human weakness comes out. It's not necessarily sinful. It's just we fail. And there's nothing wrong with them saying, well, it's no big deal. But there's something devastating about that when it is actually a big deal and we blow it off. We read this morning, both from Matthew and from Luke. Specifically in that passage in Matthew, Jesus says, Those who acknowledge me, I will acknowledge. Those who deny me, I will deny. We, we read that, and then we sing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. Do you know why you have that plea? Because you are willing to acknowledge Jesus Christ before men. If you are unwilling to acknowledge him before men, you can sing that song all you want to, and it has no meaning for you. Because you don't have a strong and perfect plea. You don't have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever pleads for you. You have someone who will deny you before God the same way you denied him before men. That is the situation that Peter is in. It's not a matter of taste. It's not a matter of human weakness. It is a matter of salvation. To blow this off would be devastating for Peter, not to mention the church. Jesus can't blow it off. It's not forgiveness to do that. So, what does he do? He says, Peter, do you love me? Now, the first time, I assume Peter and the other apostles who were gathered are sufficiently accustomed to Jesus just saying random things and then leading into some kind of teaching that he goes along with it. Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. Very formal, by the way, very formal. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. When you ask him a second time, you wonder if Peter's gears start to turn. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yeah, yeah, Lord, maybe he didn't hear Maybe I needed to speak more clearly. Yeah, yeah, I I love you. It's not until the third time that says that Peter's grieved. Now, my guess is that that grief is not just because it's three times. It's not as though, like, two times is bad, three times you're starting to embarrass me. Like, you're not, you don't believe what I'm saying. That's how I think a lot of people read it. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think the third time, the third time is when Peter finally understands what's going on. 
We've been clued into it. Peter hasn't. And by the time Jesus comes around to the third time saying, Peter, do you love me? It's like, why do you have to ask me a third time? Oh, that's right. I get that. Peter and everyone around understands he has denied Jesus three times and now Jesus is leading him. Not, it's not Peter's doing. Peter didn't come up to him and say, I denied you three times. Can I make it up to you three times? Can I, can I tell you good things three times, Jesus, to kind, of, to kind of balance out the scales? Jesus leads him to confessing it three times. So it's clear to Peter And it's clear to the apostles who are there with him that Jesus is reestablishing him. Not ignoring the sin. Not downplaying the sin. Not making it seem like it wasn't a big deal. It was a trifling thing. No, no. It's held up as important. It's held up as grievous. But Jesus in mercy reestablishes him. This is made all the more important. Given who Jesus clearly is by this time, recognized by the apostles, when people of the world have power, they are trite with power. They are rude with their power. They use their power to crush and extract from people what they want. We've had clear and obvious signs of that this past week. People with power abuse their power. Jesus is, at this time, recognized not only by the utterance of Thomas, but by everything that's happened around him as God on high. There is no man in the history of the earth who can even compete with the amount of power he has. He can manipulate molecules and atoms at will. He can go in and out of locked doors. He has power over life and death himself. And instead of crushing Peter, he refuses to break. He refuses to take him and crush him. And instead, in mercy to reestablish him. Again, this is Peter learning well. What does Peter say? How elders are supposed to lead. They are not to be overbearing to their people. They are to be people who demonstrate what it means to be forgiven by Christ. Peter speaks in this way because he knows it's happened to him. Peter could have been crushed by the Lord here. But Jesus is incredibly merciful. We, too, have had mercy from the Lord, and that is important because, thirdly, we love Jesus by portraying Jesus' glory. Let's talk, then, lastly, about Jesus' glory. Eventually, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you are actually going to suffer for me. He says, when you were young came and went as you pleased. You dressed how you wanted to. You came and you went out. When you're old, that's not going to happen. He says, you're going to have your arms stretched out. That is a a euphemism and a well-known euphemism for having a cross beam put on you. You are going to carry your cross like I did. John more than makes reference to that when he says, this is to 
show by what kind of death that Peter was going to die. Church history says that Peter, in humility, refused to be crucified right side up, but instead chose to be crucified upside down. I have no idea whether that is true or apocryphal, but we have every reason to believe that Peter was indeed crucified, just as Peter had foretold to him by Jesus. Freedom in America is often what we get to do. We only think of freedom in positive terms. Freedom is what I get to do and what you can't keep me from doing. But biblically, and honestly for a good portion of Western society, freedom is what you don't have to do. Freedom is cast probably better in certain circumstances in negative terms. What can't people compel you to do? When you read through the Bill of Rights, this is what our founders kind of said. What can't the government compel you to do? These are your rights. They're negative. The government can't establish religion. The government can't coerce speech. Things like that. The Bible speaks like this as well. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Hey, before you were saved, you were free in regard to righteousness. That doesn't mean that you could do righteousness. It meant you were free to not do righteousness. And you were bound. You were a slave to sin. But now that you have been purchased by Christ, well, that's a different story now. Now you're free in regards to sin. You don't have to sin anymore. And you are bound to Christ. You are bound to righteousness. Peter here is going to find that his freedom has been overturned. What he thought he was free to do and give himself over is now going to be required out of him. And I think that it's important that we see, not only is Peter getting his wish, he always talked about laying down his life for Jesus. And Jesus is in one way, shape, or form saying, hey, you're going to get your wish. But it's important to see the order in everything that's happening. Jesus very well had this in mind when he started talking to Peter. But he doesn't lead with it. He doesn't lead with the idea, Peter, you're going one day to be crucified. You're going one day to be bound and taken where you don't want to go for my glory. And therefore, I'm establishing you again. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? No, but he reestablishes him first so that Peter would understand why he's being called to do what he's being called to do. If Jesus had humiliated him, there's every reason to think that what Peter would have experienced when he went to the cross would have been questioning whether or not this was finally payment for his sin. I was never good enough. I didn't grovel enough. I didn't ask enough. And so now I'm being punished for denying Jesus. I now have to pay my due to Jesus for what has happened. If Jesus had blown it off, Peter would never have known what other sins might be bigger or, or worse that he might have committed that led him to this. But because Jesus knew that it was a huge sin, knew that that denial was gargantuan, and yet at the same time was able to forgive him, this can then rightly be placed in an understanding where Peter knows that he is not being punished when he is being led to the cross. He is not being punished. But this is a culmination of a life given out of love to one who loved him first. Not payment for wrongdoing, not comeuppance for misdeeds, but the final completion of a life given over to Jesus. So it is with us. Friend, you cannot know, experience, 
or glorify Jesus until you have had the mercy of Jesus applied to you. Until you truly know his mercy, truly know that he has forgiven you, you do not lay down your life for him until you recognize that he has laid down his life for you. And it is only then that you can truly love Jesus by portraying his glory. Peter was going to glorify him by the very thing that Jesus called him to do, by laying down his life the very way Peter had expected to do all along. But that could only happen after Peter denied. That could only happen after Jesus had died for him so that Peter would understand exactly why he was dying. Not to save Jesus, but because Jesus had saved him. And this is the same way in which we live. Friend, you were called, perhaps not to crucifixion, perhaps not to martyrdom, but you were called every day to take up your cross. You were called every day to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. You were called every day to make sure that his doing, his works, his beauty, his glory is what is most loudly proclaimed in your life. This is the call for all of us. Do you think yourself too evil to be forgiven by Jesus? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Try him. He will forgive you. Lay your sins before him. I I understand that speaking, not just asking for forgiveness, but telling him what you are sinful in is a difficult thing. It's difficult to tell other people that as well. But he will forgive you. He is merciful and kind and loving. He he is not seeking vengeance. He has come to the earth to provide forgiveness for people. Taste and see that he is good. Confess your sins to him. Do you think yourself too good for his forgiveness? Do you feel as though you don't need it? Many people in here will pray for you today. For you are not too good for it. You are more wicked than you know. What we will actually pray for is not so much your forgiveness, but that you might realize first and foremost what a sinner you are. And that will indeed take quite a bit of humbling, quite a a difficult path. For all of us, I pray that the mercy that Jesus shows here makes your repentance easier before him. It makes his love and care for one who has done such evil to him. Makes you more free to go to him in faith and trust that he will be kind and merciful to you as well. Jesus has died for our sins and he has been raised for our justification. We have nothing to fear from him. We don't have men to fear. We don't have politicians to fear. We don't have governments to fear. We have nothing to fear when we have the Lord on our side who has come to give his life as a ransom for many, who owes us, owns us, and gives so freely to us, let us live lives that are given over to his glory, always hailing the power that exists in his name to forgive us and to uphold us in all circumstances. Let us pray. Father God, 
How thankful we are for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. How thankful we are that you are not a God who seeks to get out of us every ounce of payment that he can get. Who is slow to forgive. Who is slow to give faith its rightful justification. But you are a God who is not just patient with us, but longs to hear us repent that you might forgive us time and time and time again. We are not, we are not quick to repent. It is distasteful to us. We are proud and we are arrogant, but you are kind. Remind us of that kindness. Remind us of that mercy. And Father, knowing how much we have been forgiven, let us also be people who are merciful to others. As elders who are kind, who are patient, who are compassionate, may we then lead people who are the same. Not ready to jump down people's throats when they have done wrong, not ready to pounce upon people to show them their sin and their wickedness, but to show them the grace of a God who died for them and who lives so that he might plead for us. We ask for your blessings on us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.